Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you are a sovereign Lord and you are Lord of all the universe. And Lord, when things are going on so crazy around us in the world and even in our own lives, we can settle down in our hearts and in our minds and trust that you have it under your control. For whatever is over our heads or under your feet. And we grab onto that now, Lord God, and we pray, Father, that as we open this word, that you would take some tidbit of information, Lord God, that you want us to apply to our lives that would help us to stand strong in the battle, knowing that you have it well within your grasp. Open our eyes today, we pray, and our hearts. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Now, I can't even imagine what it must be like to have such a great responsibility of global leadership on your shoulders with the world going out of control the way it is right now. Can you imagine that? You ever thought about having the incredible responsibility of holding the office of the President of the United States? Now, all political parties aside, no matter who's in that office, think about the responsibility of the office. It's probably the toughest job in the world, and on top of that, no matter what you do, you can't win, right? Someone's always going to complain. Someone's always going to question your motives. Someone's always going to disagree. And I'm sure there are moments when the president begins to doubt himself, his own worth, his judgment, his ability to get the job done. I'm sure there are times when the shouts of the critics overpower the whisper of courage and confidence gives way to self-doubt and despair. It's inevitable. It comes with the territory. It has happened to everyone who preceded him. As someone has said, quote, the Oval Office has to be the loneliest place in America. Being the chief includes that occupational hazard, unquote. Now you've heard the cliche, it's lonely at the top. Some years ago, I was reminded of this tragic truth through three different perspectives. One was historical, one was personal, and the other was biblical. And this historical reminder came when I reread a chapter in an old book in my library. The author related how he had recently read of a television program aired on public television, on PBS, about the Library of Congress and not the most captivating subject on TV. But nevertheless, what transpired about halfway into the program was emotionally gripping and terribly disturbing to this author in the middle of the story. About halfway through, the author says, Dr. Daniel Borston, the librarian of Congress at the time, brought out a little blue box from a small closet that once held the library's rarities. And the label on the box read, Contents of the President's Pockets on the night of April 14th, 1865. Since that was the fateful night Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, every viewer's attention was seized. Borston then proceeded to remove the items in the small container and displayed them on camera. There were five things in the box. A handkerchief embroidered a. Lincoln, a country boy's penknife, a spectacles case repaired with string, 
A purse containing a $5 bill, Confederate money, and some old and worn out newspaper clippings. The clippings, said Borston, were concerned with the great deeds of Abraham Lincoln. And one of them actually reports a speech by John Bright which says that Abraham Lincoln is, quote, one of the greatest men of all times, unquote. This was in his pocket. Today, that's common knowledge that he was one of the greatest men of all times. The world now knows that British statesman John Bright was right in his assessment of Lincoln, but in 1865, millions of people shared quite a contrary opinion. The president's critics were fierce, and they were many. His, his was a lonely agony that reflected the suffering and the turmoil of his country, ripped to shreds by hatred, by the hatred and a cruel, costly war. There is something touchingly pathetic in the mental picture of this great leader, Abraham Lincoln, seeking solace and self-assurance from a few old newspaper clippings as he reads them under the flickering flame of a candle all alone in the Oval Office. Picture that. The author says, remember this, loneliness stalks where the buck stops. Now for me, that historical reminder paved the way to a personal reminder that no matter what kind of leadership position you're in, whether you're a president or a policeman or a pediatrician or a pastor or a pulpit helper or a parent, notice all the P's, <laughs> there are times when you feel painfully inadequate to do the job that you face day in and day out. Sometimes it seems like there's too much responsibility and not enough strength. And we come up against this truth, as one man put it, that days of maintenance are far more in number than days of magnificence. Ain't that the truth? There are times when we simply feel tired, we feel alone, and unable to go on. And that has not only happened historically, it's not only realized personally, but it occurs spiritually as well. As a pastor, I know that it happens all too often within the ministry of the church at large. Peter Drucker, the late leadership guru, once said that the four hardest jobs in America, not necessarily in order, he added, are the president of the United States, a university president, a CEO of a hospital, and a pastor. Now, you don't have to look too far to find stats to back that up. Here are some from the Shepherd's Watchman website. 50% of pastors feel unable to meet the demands of the job. 90% feel that they were inadequately trained to cope with ministry demands in seminary. 70% say they have a lower self-image now than when they first started. 70% do not have someone they consider a close friend. 50% have considered leaving ministry in the last three months. Jeff, block your ears. <laughs> it's going to get better. <laughs> 
that brings me to the third remember, reminder that I had, and that's the biblical one, and the reminder that God's answer to this predicament is a predominant but often forgotten aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry, and that is the ministry of shared responsibility. This is an aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry that we normally teach from the New Testament in the area of spiritual gifts. However, today I want to briefly look at how God clearly illustrated the Holy Spirit's involvement in shared responsibility through an Old Testament event in the life of another lonely ministry leader, Moses. And what happened in the midst of his leadership outlines the truth that the Spirit empowers numerous men and women in the church to share the responsibility of the ministry and that in the final analysis, the Spirit-empowered ministry of shared responsibility is indispensable to the church. Okay? I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 11. And that's where we're going to pretty much camp out. Numbers chapter 11. The Spirit-empowered ministry of shared responsibility is indispensable to the church. Now, when it comes to effective ministry in the body of Christ, and especially as it relates to the area of shared responsibility, Warren Wearsby's words strike a piercing chord. He said, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not a luxury. It's an absolute necessity. I want you to keep that in the back of your mind, okay? It's not a luxury. It's a necessity. Now, this ministry of shared responsibility that the Holy Spirit empowers people to engage in, the first thing that I want to point out to you in the text that we're going to look at is that it relieves discouragement in God's leaders. It relieves discouragement in God's leaders. Let me give you a little background here by reading the first six verses of chapter 11 in Numbers, and then we're going to skip down to verses 10 through 15. This is the background, Numbers 11, verse 1. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some on the outskirts of the camp. Well, that ought to be a warning right there. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Taberah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. And the rabble who were among them, notice the rabble, had greedy desires and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. See, their minds going back to their bondage thinking that it was freedom and it wasn't. The cucumbers, the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone, and there is nothing at all to look at except this manna, the provision of God. And yet they were sick of it. Okay, verse 10. By the way, verses 7 through 9 is just an explanation of what manna is. Verse 10, now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, get this now, why have you been so hard on your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all this people on me? Was it I who conceived all this people? 
Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me saying, give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people because it is too burdensome for me. Can't you just feel Moses' shoulders drooping? So if you're going to deal thus with me, here we go, please kill me at once if I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. There's a famous story about a mother who walks in on her six-year-old son and finds him sobbing in his room. What's the matter, she asks. And the boy says, I just figured out how to tie my shoes. Well, honey, that's wonderful. Being a wise mother, she recognized this victory in the Ericksonian struggle of autonomy versus doubt. And she says, you're growing up, but why are you crying? And the boy says, because now I'll have to do it every day of my life. <laughs> and some days, that's how many pastors feel. Moses felt that way. Sundays come with amazing frequency and regularity in the church. They don't stop. They're, then there are weddings and there's funerals and there's meetings and counseling appointments, small groups, hospital visits, prayer needs, etc., etc., etc. You know the story. And when we lose focus and we get burned out, we only see those negative things, right? The complaints of the people ring in our ears. Frustration builds and discouragement breeds depression and making it until bedtime becomes your daily goal. You get up in the morning and you go, wow, I can't wait to put my head back in this pillow. It's not just pastors that feel that. Anyone with responsibilities deal with that. A young mom with kids running around the house, teachers, hotel managers, you name it. Anyone in the ministry can relate to Moses' lament. We sometimes find ourselves with the same impassioned words that he said in verses 11 through 15. Why me? Why have you put me in this position? I never asked for it, so why? These are your people. You gave birth to them. You made promises to them. And now they're complaining to me about you. What am I supposed to do? I'm not you. I can't bear the burden of this people alone. It's too much. It's too heavy. So if that's the way it has to be, God, do me a favor. Put me out of my misery. Kill me now. I don't think I can take the end result of all this mess. You'd be surprised at how many Christian leaders talk that way. I read this week that 250 pastors leave the ministry every month. Now that's an actual statistic. 80% of seminary and Bible school graduates who enter the ministry leave the ministry within the first five years. 75% of pastors report being extremely stressed or highly stressed. They struggle with the same issues that Moses struggled with. Here are some of them. Number one, loss of joy. I read an old story about a minister who daily went down to the railroad tracks at the center of town and he cheered uproariously as the train drove past. Must have looked like a crazy man. When asked why he did that over and over again, this was his reply. It's the one thing that I don't have to push around here. 
That guy was so wearied with pushing programs and prodding people and preaching on commitment that he relished the thought of something that made progress all by itself. Loss of joy. Loss of energy. Moses was burned out. Loss of focus. Moses has a totally messed up focus. He says, I alone, right? I alone am not able to bear this in verse 14. He forgot the truth that the Lord had to remind him in verse 23. Is the Lord's power limited? Just like Chris talked about this morning, the battle belongs to him. Sometimes you don't have to do anything. You just have to stand and watch. Loss of confidence. I am not able in verse 14. I alone am not able. No kidding. That's what God gives you the Holy Spirit for. And other people that are filled with the Holy Spirit for. And then there's loss of direction. Moses was no longer pressing toward the goal. Instead, he wanted relief. He wanted to die. He exhibited all the marks of deep depression, didn't he? He was not unlike countless other spiritual leaders in the scriptures who needed relief and support. Think Joshua in Joshua chapter 7 and verse 7 when the first battle out with Jericho, I mean uh, Ai, and they, they lost the battle. Joshua's all bummed out about it already, right out of the chute. Jeremiah chapter 20, read about Jeremiah's uh, ministry. Job chapter 3 and chapter 6. How about Jonah? Chapter 4, verse 3, he's just lamenting his whole lot. And then David in the Psalms, you can read all through the Psalms and see it. But here's, here's the one that sticks in our mind the most. That is Elijah. Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, I found myself relating a lot to Elijah at certain periods of time, in and out of that. 1 Kings chapter 19 let me read from verse 9. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah's sulking in a cave. He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. Doesn't that sound just like Moses? They seek my life to take it away. And so he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by and a great strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in that wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. The Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Mahaloha, And you shall anoint as a prophet in your place. And it shall come about the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu will put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. 
Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Shared responsibility. That list is long of those people that lamented this stuff. And the truth is apparent. The cost of leadership is high and spiritual leadership is not immune to the temptation to throw in the towel. At the height of the Cold War, President Kennedy said this, Quote, we sometimes chafe at the burden of our obligations, the complexity of our decisions, the agony of our choices, but there is no comfort or security for us in evasion, no solution in abdication, and no relief in irresponsibility, unquote. That is equally true in the church as well. The lack of understanding in churches concerning this shared responsibility has left its tragic toll with this long list of worship leaders and pastors and teachers and elders and helpers, etc., who are so overburdened and stressed out with putting out fires and hearing people's complaints that they have long since given up leading and started focusing on maintaining. That's not a good place to be. And the good news is that God always provides the answer. And in our case, as the New Testament body of Christ, just as it was in Moses' wilderness community, the Holy Spirit's ministry of empowerment to share the load is available. Initially, it relieves discouragement in God's leaders because essentially, number two, back to Numbers chapter 11, it results in, divine, in the divine distribution of God's work. Look at verses 16 and 17 here. Numbers 11. The Lord therefore said to Moses, gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there and I will take of the spirit who is upon you and will put him upon them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you will not bear it all alone. See, Moses had good grounds for his frustration. The burden was too much for one man. God knew that. That's why I believe God viewed Moses' words differently than the people's murmuring over the food. You could say people were murmuring over all of that manna and Moses was complaining to God as well. Why didn't God judge Moses? Well, Moses' lament was a cry for help, while the belly aching of the people was rooted in unbelief. Two different things going on there. Moses wasn't tired of his call as a leader. Rather, he was exhausted and unable to carry the load. His was a plea for relief and support. What resulted was God's plan to restore him and sustain him. So God's plan was and is shared responsibility. God's power was and is the strength of his Holy Spirit. The same spirit that was given to Moses would be given to the 70 other qualified leaders to share in the work. By the way, this is just not willy-nilly. The spirit was given to qualified leaders, if you read the text and see what it really is implying. So it's to balance the load, not to take it away, not to create a power struggle or to challenge Moses' leadership or authority, but to share in the responsibility. Amen? Note the wording. 
Verse 17. And they shall bear the burden of the people. What's it say? With you. So you shall not bear it alone. That is the idea behind Paul's explanation of the body of Christ. Each individual member has gifts which enable the body to grow healthy and strong, no burnout, no overstressed, overtaxed members, shared responsibility. We can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let me just read a few excerpts from 1 Corinthians 12 from you from the New Living Translation, beginning in verse 4. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. Verse 11, it is the one and only Spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. Amen? So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free, but we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. Verse 18, but our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. Get that? Just where he wants it. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body and each of you is part of it. Ephesians chapter 4, same thing. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. There, um, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 11, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Then in 1 Peter, Peter talks about it as well. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10, Peter says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So you can see this ministry of shared responsibility goes throughout the entire scripture. Notice the similarities between the Old Testament and the New Testament that number one, the gift of the Spirit was imparted by God. Number two, it was a means of relief to Moses. And in, in the Old Testament, and the leaders in the New Testament, church leaders. And then thirdly, it enriched the people. Okay? It enriched the people. That's what shared responsibility is all about. It's this balanced distribution of the load, operating with the same spirit, working together to accomplish God's will. Perhaps you've heard the story Charles Osgood told of two ladies who lived in a convalescent center. Each had suffered an incapacitating stroke. Margaret's stroke left her left side restricted, while Ruth's stroke left damaged her right side. And both of these ladies were accomplished pianists, but had given up the hope of ever playing again. Well, the director of the center sat them down at a piano and encouraged them to play solo pieces at the same time together. And they did, and a beautiful friendship developed. 
What a picture of the churches needing to work together. Amen? At what one member cannot do alone, perhaps two or more could do together in harmony. That's what shared responsibility is all about. A balanced distribution of the load, operating with the same spirit, working together to accomplish God's will. Initially, it relieves discouragement in God's leaders. Essentially, it results in an even distribution of God's work. But ultimately, and this is number three, it releases God's people for God's service. It releases God's people for God's service. And that's in verses 24 and 25 here in Numbers 11. If you're not there, turn back there. Verse 24, so Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. Also, he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and stationed them around the tent. And then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and he took of the spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. God answered Moses' prayer, didn't he? The same spirit that operated in Moses, empowering him to lead the people, was given to the 70 elders by God's own hand. The Holy Spirit was not diminished in Moses, but it was ignited in the 70. For the Spirit of God, someone has observed, is not something material which is diminished by being divided, but resembles a flame of fire which does not decrease in intensity, but increases by extension. That make sense? A thousand candles ignited from one flame doesn't lessen the one flame while it communicates light to the rest, does it? In the same way, God gave the whole, same Holy Spirit that was on Moses to the 70. And they were equipped for God's purpose and for the benefit of the people. Jesus did the same exact thing in the Gospels, didn't he? Friends, we have been ignited by the same Spirit. Same spirit that was on Moses. The same spirit that was on the 70. The light has been multiplied. Amen? What are you doing with it? You knew that was coming. This was all introduction, right? What are you doing with it? Is there evidence that you've been ignited? Anybody screaming fire when they get around you? The evidence for the 70 was that they prophesied. That was the evidence here. That doesn't mean it's going to happen that way every time. Don't make this normative. As a matter of fact, it wasn't normative because they said they didn't even do it again after that. It's difficult to identify exactly what prophesying was right there in that text. Some say that it was similar to what happened in the New Testament when various groups of people in the book of Acts received the gift of the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. Others say that they erupted in praise and similar ecstatic expressions in speech or songs previously unknown to them. Whatever it was, the point is that whatever happened identified them as being empowered by the Spirit for God's use, right? It was an identification. Now the evidence for your empowerment when you become ignited by the flame of the Spirit will be equally apparent to those around you. Let me kind of give you a picture of what that might look like. 
Your life will change. You'll have a new zeal for Christ. New abilities and gifts that not only will enable you, but encourage you to share the responsibilities of the ministry and the gospel with people. Don't be fooled. The kinds of manifestations of the Spirit that occur in us, while they may look different in character, are no less dramatic or significant than what we see here. They are the visible and definitive evidence that God has endowed not just leaders, but all Christians who have named the name of Christ with the Holy Spirit who will share the responsibility of carrying on and out the work of God. Amen? God called Moses. Go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the earth, one author writes. Tell him to let his labor force leave without compensation to worship a God he doesn't believe in. Then convince a timid, stiff-necked people to run away into the desert with you. That's your calling, Moses. And Moses said what? Here I am, send Aaron. <laughs> right? And then God called Jonah. Go to Nineveh, the most corrupt and violent city in the world, in the known world. Tell the inhabitants who don't know you and won't acknowledge me to repent or they're going to die. And Jonah said, when's the next whale leaving for Tarshish? <laughs> or, or in the opposite direction. God called Jeremiah to preach to people who wouldn't listen. It was so hard. Jeremiah cried so much that he became known as the weeping prophet even today. How would you like to have that job title? Who wants a business card that reads the sobbing CEO or, or the depressed dermatologist? Who wants that card? As a rule, the people whom we read about in Scripture who were called by God felt quite inadequate when they were called, right? When God called Abraham to leave home, or Gideon to lead an army, or Esther to defy the king, their initial response was never, yes, I'm up to that challenge, God. I think I can handle that. They never said that. The first response to a God-sized calling is generally fear. So if you're feeling a little fearful right now, that God might be pressing in on your sternum, we're tapping you on the shoulder. That's a good sign that he's calling you. The first response to a God-sized calling is generally fear. Uh, Henry Blackaby writes these words. He says, some people say, God will never ask me to do something I can't do. You ever hear that? Ever hear somebody say that? One of my pet peeves. I have come to the place in my life that if the assignment I sense God is giving me is something I know I can handle, probably not from God. The kind of assignments God gives in the Bible are always God-sized assignments, right? They're always beyond what people can do because he wants to demonstrate his nature in them, his strength in them, his provision for them, and his kindness to his people, to a watching world, this is the only way that the world will come to know that God is doing it. This doesn't mean that God calls us in a way that violates our, our raw material. Because where God calls, God gifts, right? But the same spirit that surged through Moses also gave authority to the 70. 
And that same spirit that equipped them is the same spirit that descended on the group of disciples in the upper room at Pentecost. And it's the same spirit that has called me to be a pastor and a teacher. The same spirit that has called you to some ministry in this body. You are, if you are a follower of Christ, then that can be taken even one step further. His spirit not only empowers other in this local church to share in the kingdom work, but others outside of this church as well. Other denominations. People who worship differently than we do. As long as it's biblical. People who pray in a different manner than we do. As long as it follows the scripture. Please do not misunderstand me. I'm not condoning unbiblical practices or things that go beyond the boundaries of this word. I'm talking about the ability to accept practical and cultural diversity in other Christians. Amen? Remember the statement, variety is the spice of life? If the Spirit of God is in you, you are only one of a countless variety of gifted parts of the Christ's body which when working together properly, not only shares the responsibility of contributing to its life, but also gives spice to that life. Some people are more spicier than others, right? <laughs> but with all this variety, what keeps it all working together? The answer is the most powerful three-letter word in the entire universe. God. Don't confuse unity with uniformity. Oneness doesn't mean sameness. The church is not unified because we all become like each other. The church is unified when we all become like Christ. If there's anything we need to realize, it's that shared ministry and responsibility in the church means a diversity of methods which is carried out by the same spirit. Some people simply won't accept that, however. Even well-meaning Christian leaders have trouble with this one. And that point is not ignored in our text either, by the way, as we close it out. While the ministry of shared responsibility initially relieves discouragement from God's leaders, it essentially results in distribution of God's work and ultimately releases God's people for God's service. There's one more thing here, is that it is also resisted by human intolerance. Look at verse 26. But two men had remained in the camp, the name of one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. And now they were among those who had been registered as one of the 70, as the 70 elders. Okay, but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Then Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. This whole text is so commonplace in the church, isn't it? And that man's plea for relief is followed by God's plan to restore. God's spirit is released. The people respond favorably. No way. There's immediate controversy. You want controversy? Go to a church somewhere. There's going to be controversy. Why? Why did they respond with controversy? Because two of the 70 didn't make it to the service. They didn't come to church that day. Yet they still got the blessing. 
What was the reaction? Stop them. Stop them from doing that. Right? That's what it says in verses 26 to 28. Should Moses, my Lord, restrain them? It seems that for one reason or another, Eldad and Medad, these guys had to be brothers with names like that. What else could they be? It's like Mali and Mushi, the sons of Merari in the Old Testament, right? I love those names. Now, couldn't make it to the gathering of the tent of meeting for some reason. They couldn't make it. They were initially registered as part of the 70, but for some reason, which is not stated, they didn't show up. I doubt if they were being resistant. It just says that they didn't show up for some reason. And to everyone's surprise, the Spirit rested on them where they are. Why? Because God chose them, right? God is not restrained by geographical proximity, is he? When God designates a person for service, there's absolutely no escape from it. Think Jonah here. No matter how far in the opposite direction he went, God got him to do what he wanted him to do. When the Spirit came upon them, they started prophesying right where they were. Obviously, it created a stir, and they sent a young boy to Moses. And, and look at, again at Joshua's reaction. It's the same as some people in the church. Better stop them. Better shut them up. Literally, the word is emphatic here. It says, stop them. Shut them up. They're operating outside of our jurisdiction. They'll probably start drawing people away from you, Moses, and start their own little group. They're not doing it our way. I love Moses' response. It was so confident, so humble, so direct, so calm. Look at verse 29. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? He said, would that all God's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. That should be our response. Now, I got to make a disclaimer here and an explanation here as well. We're not talking about aberrant groups that teach unbiblical things. We should shut them up and stop them, right? We're talking about people that God empowered with the Holy Spirit here, that he had chosen out of the 70 that just didn't happen to be with the same group at the same time. But Moses' response is great, and that should be ours. Joshua's motive was noble. His motive was noble, but his fear was unfounded. Because who's in charge of it all? God. Moses wasn't concerned about a coup. He wasn't on a power trip. He wasn't afraid of losing control because he knew that God was in control. His view was absolutely biblical, and the more people the Spirit empowers for ministry, the better. God will be glorified. If it's not the Spirit doing it, then it will surely be exposed, won't it? And if it is of God, then there's nothing you and I can do about it. Sound familiar? It should, because the same exchange took place between Jesus and his disciples in Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 40. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw a man using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he isn't one of our group. Don't stop him, Jesus said. No one who performs miracles in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who is not against us is for us. 
Paul harbored that same attitude while confined in a jail cell in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 15. Some here preach Christ because with me out of the way, they think they'll step right into the spotlight. But the others do it with the best heart in the world. One group's motivated by pure love, knowing that I'm here defending the message, wanting to help. The others know now that I'm out of the picture are merely greedy hoping to get something out of it for themselves. Their motives are bad. They see me as their competition. And so the worse it goes for me, the better they think for them. So how am I to respond, Paul says. I've decided that I really don't care about their motives, whether mixed or bad or indifferent. Every time one of them opens his mouth, Christ is proclaimed, so I just cheer them on. The true servant of God rejoices in the spread of the kingdom and to the glory of God. But I need to balance that with something else. In the New Testament, when demon-possessed people were following Paul and saying, you need to listen to this guy because he's preaching the way to God and the good news of the gospel, Paul shut that down. Why? Because it originated with Satan and it was designed to deceive. So you have to be very careful about it. Not just a blanket rule. But a true servant of God rejoices in the spread of the kingdom and the glory of God. He's not concerned with his own glorious position. Moses was a true servant. He understood fully that his measure before God did not depend on his standing before men. Let me say that again. I'm going to say that again. I'm going to say it to me, and I'm going to say it to Chris, and I'm going to say it to Henry, and I'm going to say it to Jeff. Going forward, that our standing before God, your standing before God does not depend on your standing before men if you're following God's will. Spirit-empowered men and women are not such cheap things that we can throw them away. If someone else preaches from this pulpit, my prayer for them is that, they, is that they should be preaching brilliantly. That's my prayer. I want to always encourage others to minister and never feel that my position is threatened. And you, as members of this body, should support those who are given the opportunity to minister in their giftedness. God has called them. Of course, it goes without saying that they must be called and operating according to the scriptures. That means, you know, here's a little bit of a spanking, I guess. That means if I go on vacation or, heaven forbid, when I retire, kind of retire, I keep saying that, or your favorite music team isn't, is, is not on the schedule, and you say to yourself, well, someone else is preaching and leading worship today. I think I'll stay home. I think I'll go somewhere else. Not good. This is a family. It's supposed to be. It's a body. It's not supposed to be the focus on the people up front. It should be ministry-based on shared responsibility. But again, it must be following the scriptures and following the Holy Spirit. Shared responsibility is the will of God for his people. It relieves the discouragement of God's leaders. It results in the balanced distribution of God's work. It releases people for God's service. Who are we to resist God's spirit? We need each other. That's what Romans 12 says. 
As God's messenger, Paul says in Romans 12, verse 3, I give each of you this warning. Be honest in your estimate of yourselves, measuring your value by how much faith God has given you. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are all parts of his one body and each of us has different work to do. And since we are all one body in Christ, we belong to each other and each of us needs all the others. Let me bring this message to a poignant close with the following challenge. One of my favorite authors pulled from a 1980s movie that many of you may remember. Now, I'm not telling you to go out and watch this movie. Don't do that. Get the point that I'm trying to make from here. You'll recognize the line. John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. They started in a movie called The Blues Brothers, right? And they played a couple of ex-convict wannabe musicians who were trying to raise money for an orphanage. Anytime they were asked about their work, they had a standard response, right? We're on a mission from God. That's what they would say. They always said it as if they believed it. And the very idea that the two inept, unworthy human beings could be on a mission from God was, of course, the central joke of the entire movie. But here's the story of your life, my friends. You're on a mission from God. If you are a Christian, you're on a mission from God. Either that is true, or you have no purpose on this earth. No mission on this earth as a Christian. And you know that's not true. The scripture says it's not true. Jesus put it like this. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Others have come before you. Others will come after you. But this is your day. If God's kingdom is to manifest itself right now, before Christ comes back, it's going to happen through you as a believer in Christ. God himself will not come to take your place if he's got a mission for you to accomplish before he returns. You are on a mission from God. Amen? Have you figured it out yet? <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you you've called us to be on mission for you. And Lord, people, they rise and fall, they come and go. Leaders come and go. Christians come and go out of churches, out of ministries. But you have purposes for each and every single one of us for a season and a time. Help us, Lord God, to grab onto that mission with both hands. Submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit's fire and burn for you. For I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.